one of the things that I just love about songs like that, uh, just the older style songs, is the depth and the riches, uh, just the simplicity, the ability to hear uh, the saints around you be singing the same songs that we had, uh, if, if we were able to, could hear generations of believers sing those same songs. So uh, what I'd like to do is actually just begin uh, our time this morning uh, just with a prayer that God would make those words that we just sang uh, true. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to lead us through what's called a pastoral prayer. If you've never been involved in that, I I provide space, um, uh, a couple of prompts for you to be able to pray, for us to be able to pray as a body so that it's not just me praying over you, but for us to do that together. So bow with me if you would. God and Father, we just sung that we want to stand on the solid rock of Christ, that we don't want to be in sand. So this morning, we just want to uh, uh, pray that uh, this morning. Spend the next few moments just praying that God would allow you to stand on the rock of His Son, Jesus Christ. Father, those words are poetic, that we would stand on the rock of Christ. So, Lord, we ask you that you would teach us what it is to stand on that rock. Lord, in a day and age where there are so many things competing for our attention, uh, making in some ways us just so unmindful, um, wishy-washy, just able to be blown about like chaff in the wind, Lord, we ask you that you would give us solidity. Spend the next moment or two asking God that he would give you resolve, boldness, courage, steadfastness. Father, when we think about the ways to enact that kind of steadfastness, uh, we wonder a bit what it is that we should turn our attention towards. How is it that we can be steadfast in Christ? And Lord, uh, you tell us that it is with your word, uh, Lord, this morning. We intend to do that. Uh, Spend the next uh, few moments uh, praying that you personally would be steadfast in the word of God, reading scriptures, uh, that God would draw your attention towards them often, but also give a a special prayer this morning that uh, he would bless our time in his word. Father God, you have spoken to us surely, you have uh, spoken to us sufficiently in your word. So Lord, as we turn our attention towards Acts chapter 24, we ask you that you would meet us in these texts, that you would speak sweet words to us, that you would tell us something of the kingdom of Christ, that you would allow for us to believe in it wholeheartedly. Lord, would your word be real to us today, just as if you were here speaking it to us yourself. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We ask you for an extra measure of the Spirit this morning, uh, just in accordance with trying to discern your word and trying to have something of it communicated to not just our minds, but our hearts. Lord, we pray all of these things in the great name of Jesus Christ. Amen. 
Like I just said, we're going to be in Acts chapter 24, so if you would pick up a copy of Scriptures this morning and turn there, uh, because we are going to be there. We're going to be covering the entire passage, but it's a little laborious to get through uh, the entire thing. So what I want you to do is specifically turn your attention uh, towards verse 22, which is what we're going to read here in a moment. But uh, while you're turning there, I want to give you the title of this morning's sermon. The title of this morning's sermon is The Politics of Persecution. The politics of persecution. I even saw a few uh, heads go up at the word politics. I know that even including the word politics, especially these days, in the title of the sermon can cause some to just recoil, call others to have like just a... uh, a curiosity that is piqued, healthy or unhealthy in some ways. And I want you to know that I'm using the word politics intentionally, uh, not just because I think that it's a good attention grabber, but because that's what we're dealing with in the text today. What you will see is that there is a politics to persecution. There's a politics of persecution. So lest we all not know necessarily what I mean when I say the word politics, I want to give you a simple definition of it. Politics is the activities associated with the governance of a people. It's the activities associated with the governance of a people. So if you have uh, things like wrapped up in this, if you're like worried that we're going to be talking about uh, D's and R's and uh, different political philosophies, don't worry, we're not going to be covering that this morning. We're going to be talking about the way that people are governed. Because all of that, all of that activity associated with the governance of people all has the aim and the hope of achieving some sort of power, some sort of end. And that is a spiritual statement. Having hope that we would achieve some sort of power or end is not something that is primarily political but spiritual. And I don't think that I have to convince anyone here that politics has kind of invaded every space in our culture. It's kind of inevitable at this point. You're saying, tell me about it. You're bringing it into this space, right? I'm trying to actually kind of knead it even into this conversation. I was actually in a conversation the other day with a group that runs a local uh, nonprofit organization. And uh, the statement was made, uh, what we're really trying to do here is be non-political. We're trying to be as far away from politics as possible. We want to be not political, specifically. And after thinking about that really wonderful sentiment for a few moments, I realized that I'm convinced that there was really just no such thing. Because remember the definition. The definition is that politics is any activity associated with the governance of people. So any kind of nonprofit that's trying to deal with people is going to have things that may not be at their very essence political, But the things that they're going to be doing to try to impact people's lives are going to extend through the organization all the way into the way that people govern, the way that people think about the world. The kingdom of Christ extends to all things. So if we think that the church specifically is something that is apolitical, that is without politics, you've got another thing coming. The kingdom of Christ actually begins at the seat of Christ and then extends to everything. How do I know this? Because if Jesus is alive, then everything changes. Jesus then is at the center of all things. He commands all things, and he's deserving of all glory. And that means that Jesus reserves the right to rearrange any part of our lives, especially, maybe foremost, in this time, in this day, in this age, our politics. In Acts 24, we see this. We see that uh, a man is engaged in politics. We see that Paul is engaged in politics. We even see, and I'll try to be proving this this morning, we see God 
informing and using politics to achieve and show and demonstrate his power. So if you're wanting just a little bit of a foretaste of where we're going, that's going to kind of give us some sort of form this morning. So if you would, turn to uh, Acts chapter 24, verse 22, and read along with me. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he, that is Paul, should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some day, Felix, this is the Roman governor, by the way, and Drusilla, his wife, we'll find out here in just a moment that she was politically connected as well. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I'll summon you again. At the same time, he had hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Justus, Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. This is the word of the Lord. What we find here in Acts chapter 24 and the whole of it is that enduring the politics of persecution will result in the salvation of nations. So if you're a note taker, again, that's enduring the politics of persecution results in the salvation of nations. And we're going to see this in this text by way of three conspiracies that I think we see here. Three conspiracies. So people are conspiring. We're going to see first the conspiracy of man. We're going to see second the conspiracy of Paul. And finally, we're going to see the conspiracy of God. Now, just by way of a little bit of context here, in Acts chapter 19, uh, verse 21, we see something happen in Paul's life. Paul is in the midst of a lot of persecution, and God comes to him in the midst of a lot of discouragement and says something very specific to Paul. He stands next to him, and he says, Now Paul resolved in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem, and after that he should go to Rome. So, so Paul's experience there is that he resolves in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem first. We've already seen that. And then after that, to go and see Rome. So he takes an oath, he purifies himself, and then he goes down to Jerusalem. First to see the brothers and then to go into the temple. We've been studying about his time in that temple, however brief, and how it affected his life there in Jerusalem. He was suspected of defiling the temple. And so he was seized and drug out and began to be beaten, and there was a riot. And the Romans sitting up above them saw the riot happening, and they decided to come down and break it up. They're like, hey, beating prisoners is kind of our thing. You don't get to do that. So they broke it all up and tried to understand what it was that was happening. And Paul was unjustly taken into custody. So then there were all of these other kind of politics that were happening, and uh, the Jews had decided that they were going to kill Paul. They had even taken an oath that they were going to uh, kill him uh, and that they weren't going to eat until they killed him. They're plotting against Paul while he was in custody of the tribune, and tri the tribune, finding out about it, sends Paul away 
to Felix, the governor of the entire region. This would have been a very powerful person. And he sent with Paul some instructions to Felix to decide his case. All of this is going to be important here in just one moment. So to understand how enduring the politics of persecution results in the salvation of nations, we first have to understand the conspiracy of man. In what way does man conspire against Paul, against God's will, against the church? In what way does it do that? Read with me in verses 1 through 9. After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. And they laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, that's Paul, saying, since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made in this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg in your kindness to hear us briefly For we have founded this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world, and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, that is, Christians. He even tried to profane our temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that these things were so. So where do we see the conspiracy of man? Where, where is it that we find this conspiracy working out in the politics of persecution? Paul finds himself whisked away under guard, still in custody in Caesarea, custody in Caesarea even as a Roman. Now that's an important point to make. Paul is not just some learned man. He's not just some Jew. He's actually a Roman citizen. So what's happening to him here is actually really significant, and the Romans of the day would have taken it very seriously. He was a citizen of Rome. The only way that this could have happened is if man was conspiring together to persecute him, but the question is who? And we get all of the actors here in this passage. We see that Ananias, the chief priest, We see the elders from Jerusalem actually got together, they formed charges against Paul, and then they did something that if you read past it doesn't make a whole lot of sense or just seems like it's nothing, but it's actually really significant. They actually formed this against Paul and then hired a spokesman. They went out and got themselves a lawyer, a spokesperson. Look at the name. Look at the name of the person whom they brought into this. His name was Tertullus. This was probably not a Jew. This was probably a lawyer who was Roman, so that they had a greater standing in the court where Felix was. When they begin their accusations, he starts off all of his arguments by flattering Felix. He says, most excellent Felix, we've enjoyed so much peace and so many reforms at your hand. Now stop. Do you remember what the Jews were expecting out of their Messiah? They weren't expecting a uh, peace-loving man. They were expecting a warrior. They were expecting a politician. They were expecting somebody who would actually take them out of Roman rule. Question for you. Did Jews enjoy Roman rule at this time? Did they believe a word of what Tertullus was saying here? Of course they didn't. They didn't have any desire to be under Roman rule. And so all of this flattery is not just flattery, it's lies. They hated Roman rule and wouldn't have for one second 
thought that Felix's reforms were good or certainly that they were benefiting them as a people. So they're putting aside their religious duties, like literally, these, the chief priests would have had duties where? Not, not in Caesarea. He would have had religious duties there in Jerusalem. And he leaves those to go and persecute a man named Paul. You get some idea of the significance that they must have taken Paul. They had seen some of their power, some of their political power, some of their religious power start to wane as Paul, this professor of Christianity, is marching around to all of these synagogues all over the world. And all he's doing is proclaiming about this man that we put to death. It didn't look good on them. The chief priests would have known it. There would have been Jews that would have been being pulled away. They would have had uh, great deals of uh, disagreement with the theology that Paul was putting out there. And so Ananias, the chief priest, is willing to go even to Gentile Caesarea to stand against Paul. They're putting their politics and their religious duties aside just so that they can kind of conspire with all of these other people. Their politicking predictably gets them lying about Paul lying about what Paul says, lying about, about these riots that he supposedly was stirring up. And this is significant. Their charges that they're bringing against him are here very significant. Maybe you've heard uh, the saying Pax Romana. It's a Latin saying. It would have been something that as a Roman you couldn't have gotten away from. The, the idea of Pax, which is, uh, which is actually peace, that peace is coming by way of Rome, that Rome was a place of peace. Of course, Rome was achieving some amount of order and civility and peace by way of the sword. They were putting anybody that dissented to death. To be a rioter, to be an insurrectionist would have been very dangerous. To be charged of that would have been very dangerous. Why? Because you're disturbing the peace. And they're lying about Paul. They're saying he's disturbing the peace. This would have been very concerning. So they're conspiring with these Roman rulers. Now, we know from our reading earlier that Felix was glad to participate in this conspiracy. Even though Paul was a Roman citizen, he should have been immediately released. Why? There are two reasons why, and Paul even alludes to it. We're going to read it here in just a second in his defense, that his original accusers, the, the Jews that were in Asia, the ones that were in these synagogues, they, they weren't even there. They weren't even around. The ones who found their way to the temple and began accusing him, they weren't there. Paul's accusers weren't there. The Romans had a law that in order to be accused, you had to stand in front of your accuser. It would have been unlawful what Felix was being asked to do to put him to death, to keep him in bondage. He should have been immediately released. The second reason why is because he didn't break Roman law. Paul didn't break any Roman laws. What did he do? He went into the temple. He was breaking Jewish laws, and now he's in front of a Roman governor and being asked to be sentenced to death. He should have been immediately released. However, Felix unjustly punts on the whole question, saying, you know what, I'll, I'll decide this when Lysias comes down. Now, what, what's so scandalous about that? How do we know that this is getting really political? Well, he just received him from Lysias. Lysias was the tribune who sent Paul by way of like 200 soldiers in the middle of the night to Felix with a letter saying, hey, here's what we found that this guy did. The Jews are trying to kill him. I need you to decide this matter. So Lysias has already punted on the whole thing anyway. He's saying, I don't want to decide this. 
If I put him to death, I'm doing something unjust, according to Roman law. And if I don't, I'm going to have all of these unhappy Jews here on my hands. They're the people that I need to be happy with me. Felix knows the same thing. He knows that if he does anything with Paul, that he's going to be the one that faces the backlash. He's going to have to answer for all of the disturbance that happens there in Jerusalem. Do you see the political story starting to take form? What's the consequence? The, the consequence is nothing for the Jews and the chief priests and for Tertullus. It's nothing really for Felix. He just goes, I'm going to keep you under house arrest, really in custody. It wouldn't have been like a happy situation in the home. He wouldn't have been able to go anywhere. How long does it say? For two years. Now, we can read over that as something that happened long ago, but maybe just recently you've gotten a taste of what it is to be confined to your home. Maybe you've gotten a taste of what it is to be confined and isolated, not able to join together with your brothers and sisters in Christ, and you've got a small taste. And here, Paul is under arrest, in custody for two years for something that he didn't do. Now, here's where this should start plucking our heartstrings. Our, our nation loves justice. We talk about justice all the time. And here is a man who stands falsely accused, and he can't do anything. He's in custody. He's in jail. He's unjust. We see that this unjust custody lasted for two years. Why? Because Felix was trying to do the Jews a favor, verse 27. He was trying to do the Jews a favor. The second reason in verse 26 is, is that he was hoping that he would receive some money. Now, I don't think that Felix thought that Paul was that wealthy. I mean, he, he was a governor. He would have had a lot of money. I think what he was thinking is, the longer that I leave him in custody and let some of his friends come in and out and attend to his needs, they're going to start taking up a collection. This is one of their, like, primary guys. So it costs me nothing to leave him in jail. I'm going to just have his friends attend to his needs. And then on the other side, if they take up some sort of collection and they come and pay me off, then I get some money. This is like a win-win for Felix. What is he doing? He's being political. He's persecuted. Paul, though, we see is not surprised in the face of injustice. Christians, what can we learn from Paul's example here? Is the highest order of things justice and injustice? Is Paul surprised? We ought not be surprised when we face injustice. Why? Because I know that Paul is remembering the words of Christ if the world hates you, you should know that it hated me first. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. There's nothing strange about these fiery trials that Paul is enduring. Why? Because man is conspiring. It's pursuing a politic of persecution against the church. Should that be something that surprises any one of us when we read it here? The answer is no. The conspiring of man leads to the politics of persecution. But, but it, it relies on the conspiring of man, not just against other men, but against God's purposes. And Paul here is content. Why is he content? Why is Paul content? Well, the second point is, is that he's conspiring too. 
Paul is conspiring. He's participating in this politics of persecution, but he has a different end goal. Look with me in verse 10, starting in verse 10. We're going to read through 24 where we've started. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, knowing that for many years you have been the judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. So it hasn't been more than 12 days. He's done a lot in this 12 days. Did he have a time, enough time to start an insurrection, to start riots in the temple? He's saying, I didn't even have time to do what they were saying that I did. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring against me. But I confess this to you, that according to the way, that was an early way of talking about Christianity, according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law written in the prophets, having hope in God, which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience both toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came bearing alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult, but some Jews from Asia, they, they ought to be here before you and make an accusation. They, should they have anything against me or else, let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. So Paul makes his defense with the confidence of a man who is conspiring. He has a great deal of confidence. Do you see it here? Paul has a conspiracy too. Paul is playing their political game because he's confident in his righteousness and in God's control. First, Paul gives them a reasonable defense. I had just gotten to Jerusalem. I was worshiping in the temple. By the way, my testimony is that I worship the God of our fathers. I believe in the law and prophets. I set my hope in God the same way that they do. But then the, Paul uses the opportunity to twice mention the resurrection. He's like laying some groundwork in here to say, hey, listen, I, I, I don't know why they're accusing me of all of these things. I did nothing wrong. The, the one possible point of dispute that we have is about the resurrection. And that's a spiritual matter not a legal matter. He's making a defense. He's using this whole political system to accomplish his and God's purposes. So you might ask, Paul's conspiring? I don't quite get that. You see, Paul isn't guilty, and he defends himself, but he also doesn't complain about the injustice. He isn't constantly mentioning to Felix that what's happening to him is unjust. Why? Maybe because he has a plan. Instead, what Paul does is endure this political persecution, trusting in God's sovereign plan. And why? Because he has his eyes set on Rome. 
How, how do we know that? We're going to discover it here in just a moment. But I, I need you to know that the reason why he seems so calm and collected and confident, standing before the governor of an empire, like literally there's not another like political person in between him, Felix, him uh, between Felix and the emperor. There's nobody. He's talking to a really powerful person. Imagine that you walked in today and you were having a conversation with the governor of Texas and you get some idea of the man that he's talking about, but he's not nervous. He's confident. Why? Because he has confidence in what God is doing. So he endures through it. Christians would do well to see Paul's example here and endure the politics of persecution because we know, we know at the end of all of this that it results in the salvation of nations. You see, far too many of us complain about the little persecutions that we face. And I'm not going to belittle those this morning, but I want for us to have some, some bit of perspective here. If you maybe hear somebody that's making a great deal of the political persecution that Christians may endure today in the United States, to make a great deal of it is in some ways to belittle what has happened throughout human history where Christians have died for their faith, or to belittle in some way what the Christian church in China is enduring today, or what a Christian in Baghdad would be enduring today. Instead of enduring the politics of persecution, they say that we need to preserve our nation to avoid persecution. Now, I'm not saying that we should seek persecution out, but I do think that we should have Paul's mind about all of it to endure, to be humble, not necessarily to put our own grievances in front of the efforts of the gospel. And that's exactly what Paul does. Paul uses this opportunity while he is in, per, uh, in the persecution of prison to write letters to the early church. We have evidence of this today, right? So Paul could get in a tizzy. He could talk about, he, he's got an audience with the governor of Rome, with the regional governor of Rome. And instead of mentioning one iota of how he's being treated, he submits to the persecution, stays in custody, and writes half of the New Testament. Not, not in this one time, but throughout the persecution that he uh, had to endure, he's writing all of these things that end up becoming the letters that the Christians of the day and that we today also treasure. He uses the opportunity. But also, he does something else. He boldly evangelizes to Felix and Drusilla. Now, here's something that we need to understand. There's like a lot of like paint that we can put in here to help you understand like what's happening with Felix and Drusilla. So we read this part at the very beginning. Here's what you need to know about Felix. Felix was born a slave. He and his brother were both born a slave and they rose to the highest levels of Roman rule. His brother was even higher than him. He was a personal, close personal friend of the emperor, of Caesar. And then he, being cunning and everything else, got this position too. He rose up from slavery to become one of the most powerful men in Rome. In fact, one historian that was talking about him at the time said that he ruled as a prince, but also like a slave. He was cunning. He was unjust. He was brutal. He was power hungry. 
The man we know had three wives, Drusilla being the last. But we don't just know about Felix, we also know something about Drusilla that'll surprise you, I think. She was an ambitious woman. She had uh, before married a prince, but it wasn't because she came from, a, came from slavery and then married a prince. This wasn't like a rags to riches story. She was the daughter and great, uh, great daughter, sorry, granddaughter and the great granddaughter of men that you've heard of, of Herod's. That's who she was. She was coming from, uh, she wasn't just Jewish, we're told that here, but we also know historically that she came from the men who uh, literally uh, just slain babies at the time that Jesus was born, went around to Bethlehem and like literally just killed all of the babies, hoping that he uh, could keep this Messiah from rising to power. And it was only by a miracle of God that Joseph took his family and fled to Egypt. This was also one of the Herods that, uh, that was uh, in charge of uh, literally trying Jesus. And here, the granddaughter, the great-granddaughter, the daughter of these men is married to Felix. Here's something else that you need to know about her, because this will become very important here in just one moment, that at her own wedding, I was not referring to Felix as a prince. She had married a minor prince, and at her own wedding, met who? Felix, and ran away with him. Both of them are now on uh, their second and third marriages. They're uh, openly practicing adultery, and that's where we get some context for verse 24. After some days, Felix came with his wife Drusilla and sent for Paul. Now, we know that he had a pretty accurate understanding of the way. That's what it said earlier. And so what Paul does is he seizes on this opportunity, again, not for his own sake, not to make a plea, not to pay a bribe and just go along his way. No, he conspires for the sake of the gospel. What does it say there that he spoke about? Look with me. Look with me in the text. He spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. I want you to appreciate what's happening here. Paul has the opportunity to speak to the Roman governor. He says not one word about himself. He says the name Christ Jesus over the situation. He's probably not improving his situation at all. Unless you think that that's where he uh, stops. It says that he goes on and reasons with them. Keep in mind the marriage, the married couple that's sitting in front of him. What does he reason with them about? Righteousness. Self-control the coming judgment. That's what Paul decides to talk to the man who can set him free about. <laughs> Righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. He's not improving his, his situation at all. And what was the reaction? Felix was alarmed. Alarmed as well he should be. There is, I think, contained in this a warning for us. Do not be as Felix. Do not be as Felix. If you've found yourself in adultery or grievous sin and you're confronted with the gospel and the gospel tells you to be righteous, to be self-controlled, tells you about a coming judgment, what is the proper response? It is alarm, but then it is also repentance. It is also faith in Christ Jesus. Paul was a conspirator. 
Paul was conspiring to use the politics of his persecution to win souls. He was conspiring with the will of God. And that's what we're going to spend a lot of the rest of our time together talking about. In Acts chapter 23, verse 11, it says this. It says, I started, uh, um, I started actually to recite this earlier. And this is, this is where the Lord is standing by Paul. Not, not the previous verse. This is where the Lord is standing by Paul. In Acts 23, verse 11, it says, The Lord stood by him when he was discouraged and said, Take courage. For as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify about me in Rome. God is conspiring to fulfill his great commission. If you're reading Acts in any other context than the Holy Spirit going about fulfilling the great commission, you got it all wrong. The great commission is at the heart of Acts. And God is the one leading the way. God is moving to advance Jesus' kingdom. He's not wanting that any to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And God is using the politics of persecution to take Paul to testify, not just in Jerusalem, not just in Caesarea, but in Rome. And next week we'll see Paul literally appeal to Caesar, the one person that stands between him and freedom now will be Caesar. We'll talk about that next week. But what happens in Rome? We're going to step out of the text for just one moment. We're talking about the conspiracy of God, right? That's what we're talking about? The conspiracy of God to fulfill his great commission? What is it that happens then in Rome as Paul ends up going to Rome and planting churches and speaking to churches persecuted there in Rome? What happens? Salvation. The salvation of nations. The Roman emperor Julian writes this in the fourth century, regretting the progress of Christianity because it has pulled people away from Roman gods. He said atheism, that's what he called Christianity, because instead of being polytheistic, to believe in none of those gods was actually to be atheistic. So he says this, atheism, Christianity, has been, uh, has, uh, been especially uh, advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers. Now, I, I kind of stumbled over the words there, but I want you to get it. Atheism, that is Christianity, has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through the care and burial of the dead. The Christians there in Rome had this ministry. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar and that the godless Galilean care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well, while those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render to them. What, what is it that the emperor is saying? This is the emperor right before all of Rome ends up becoming Christian. And he says, man, I regret the fact that these Christians are even here. Why? Because they don't believe in any of our other gods. And by like rendering all of this kindness and service, by burying the dead in respectful ways, by providing for every person that is in their sect, he would have seen Jews as being a part of this sect. And the Galileans would have been how, who he was referring to there. He's saying they're taking care of business and it's converting everybody. And I hate it. What is the fruit of God's conspiracy there in Rome? What do we see? What is it that we see? We see that Rome 
goes from a pagan empire of polytheism to Christianity by, degree, uh, by, uh, by decree of Constantine in less than 300 years. If you've fallen away from all of this, here's what I want you to get. God is all too glad to use the unwitting political power structures for self-immolation and for national salvation. What do, what do I mean by that? I mean that God loves to conspire. He loves to use our political power structures to accomplish His purposes. When people conspire to persecute His people, He loves twisting that and bending it out straight for His own purposes. That's what He loves to do. We see that God's conspiracy is a gospel conspiracy. God's conspiracy is a gospel conspiracy, and this is where we're going to land this morning. We must see that what happened to Paul is not new. It's the pattern of persecution of Christ. It is the pattern of persecution that they used against Christ. Consider the Garden of Gethsemane with me for one moment. You know the story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? What happens there but that Judas, a man who is supposed to be a friend, comes having been paid with 30 shekels of silver, about 10, a little less than $10,000 to sell out the Son of Man. And the 30 pieces that were paid him by the chief priests, who were the spiritual authority of the day, conspired with him to positively ID Jesus at night. And the chief priests, we know, probably played, uh, paid him, not just in like random pieces of silver, but in Tyrian shekels. This was Roman coinage, so this was Roman financial authority that was used to conspire against him. How do we know that? It's because the temple tax, the temple tax was actually paid with these Roman coins at the time. So they would have had a lot of them just lying around, and they gave him a bag of them to sell out the Son of Man. And with Judas, there were not only the chief priests and the elders who were the religious authorities, there was also a contingent of guards there. These would have been Jewish guards that would have been the muscle. They would have been using their physical authority to conspire against Jesus. And what did they do? They carried him away to be tried by a council, this judicial authority, in a false trial at night where they should not have been trying him. Afterwards, they swept him away to Pilate and then to Herod and then back to Pilate, this political authority. And then he was delivered to Roman soldiers, the military authority of the day, to be killed on a Roman cross. Why, why am I going into this level of detail? I want you to see the conspiracy. I want you to understand that there is politics of persecution that the things of this world are conspiring against not just Paul, not just us, not just God, but against the Son of Man, Jesus. They all weaved a web of conspiracy to put our Savior to death. But there was another conspirator in the death of Jesus Christ, and it was you. You and I. We conspired in our sin. We gave assent to the fact that the, the Son of Man had to die. We had to get rid of him. But it wasn't just us. It was Satan who conspired to tempt Jesus. And then when he couldn't tempt Jesus, he had to conspire in the murder of Jesus, literally indwelling the body of Judas. Who was the foremost victim of per political persecution? Jesus was. Jesus was the foremost victim of the politics of per persecution, and he endured to the finish, to his death. 
Enduring the politics of persecution, Jesus finished the salvation of nations. Do you see it? Do you hear me? Enduring the politics of persecution, Jesus, not Paul, not you, accomplished and finished the salvation of nations. I'm going to put it even more concisely, okay? God uses politics to accomplish the salvation of nations. That's what he does. He'll use anything that he can to accomplish his will. God the Father desiring to justify, to make an end once and for all your sins and mine. Use these conspiracies, these ancient conspiracies. God used these conspiracies to accomplish his will. And his will was the salvation of nations. And one day we will see that in complete fruition. If you long for a day where there are no more conspiracies, where there are no more politics, where there is no more persecution, He's already finished it. We're just waiting for that day. But it took the death of his son. So I've said that that we also must follow this model. We have to endure. We have to endure the politics of persecution to see the salvation of nations as well. So what, what does that mean? What does endurance look like? Well, the first thing that I want to do in just kind of a brief application section is to say this. I want you to take heart, okay? Now, this has been heavy. We've been talking about politics. We've been talking about the Son of Man being crucified on a cross. That's a pretty heavy thing. And we'll be focusing on that uh, over the next week. By the way, uh, the the announcement earlier for like the app, get the Easter Now app. This isn't just something that like ended up on on the app section. One of my close friends, Greg Love, a mentor to me for years would actually just text out through the Passion Week uh, precisely what was happening on this hour and that hour. And it was always so encouraging to me. And he did it for like hundreds of people. He just would send out these texts and say, hey, here's what happened this morning on the timeline of the Passion Week. And then he, he used some of the money that God blessed him with to create a really excellent app. And so if you're looking to move through this Passion Week with some understanding of what's going on, get the app. It's really good. If you don't like it, don't use it next year. But it's really good. I want to encourage you to do that. But I want you to take heart. Why? Paul endured, Jesus endured, and we too shall endure persecution. 1 Peter 4 verse 12 says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Did you hear what happened there? You can be steadfast. You can endure in the midst of persecution. Why? Because when you do it, you look like Jesus. You display Jesus. You show the world Jesus. And you get to rejoice in sufferings, not because you like suffering, not as some weird Christian masochist, but because you look like Jesus. You're identifying with Jesus. So take heart. If people think you're weird, if you get threats because you're a Christian, Whatever it is that might be, if you feel slighted, not invited to parties because you're the weird Christian, take heart. They they pale in comparison to the sufferings of Christ. But insofar as it depends on you, your identification with Christ is something that you can rejoice in 
That's what Peter says there. Second, take particular care in raising your children to be steadfast in the faith. We are not promised that our children will share our faith. We're not promised that. But we are encouraged in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6, Train up your child, train up a child, train up a child in the way he should go, even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Here's the deal. I mentioned this earlier. I think that some Christians take uh, too much account of current persecutions. It's kind of the, the Fox News, you know, Christian out there that just says, you know, they're taking Christ out of Christmas. All right. Okay. But I think that we might be putting too much into those things. It, it belittles, like I said earlier, some of the sufferings of the saints in the past. But however, you could be forgiven for thinking that those things, those clouds are gathering on the horizon. You, you could be forgiven for thinking that persecution, serious persecution might arrive here in Fort Worth, Texas in your lifetime. But even if it doesn't, I think that we all get a sense that our kids are probably going to be facing more persecution than we are. And that's sobering. Do you think that your kids are going to endure persecution, the politics of persecution, and then be winning souls and seeing nations saved if we are not very intentional about passing on our faith about disciplining our children in the faith, giving them the word. Child-rearing is serious business. The politics of persecution are already conspiring for their souls. Take particular care in raising your children to be steadfast in the faith. Third and finally, does Jesus command your politics or is it the other way around? I, t I told you at the very beginning, we're not going to be talking about D's and R's. I, I just could not be bothered. But I do wonder where your heart is. I do wonder the order of things in your life. Does Jesus command your politics or is it the other way around? If Jesus is your king, then you live in no democratic or socialist hellscape, but you live in a monarchical paradise. What do I mean by that? I mean that you don't live in a democracy. You live in a monarchy. If Jesus is king over your heart, I mean, how in the world do the politics of the present age matter to you in deep and abiding and eternal and spiritual ways? How do they matter to you? Well, you might say they matter very much to me. I want to impress on you not to have the wrong order of things. If Jesus is king, then your politics are kingdom politics. Why? Because you're doing the will of a kind king, and any earthly politics is far downstream from there. Psalm, 20, uh, Psalm 146, verse 3 says this, Put not your tr trust in princes in whom there is no salvation. I think that some of us just need to hear that this morning. We're trying to be saved in a lot of different ways. For some of us, we're trying to be saved by our politics. 
We're, we're most concerned about uh, the nation and where it's headed, or our friend and what they're believing. And we spend countless hours reading and, and Instagramming and tweeting all of these things to evangelize a false gospel in politics. I don't, I don't mean that there's not truth in politics. I just mean that it can't save you. <laughs> your politics cannot save you. Put not your trust in princes. There's no salvation. So, so here's the last thing that I want you to hear just by way of some practical application here. If Jesus is the king of your life, let your politics be way downstream from there. Way downstream. Let's pray that these things would be true and be real to us this morning. Bow with me. God and Father, we thank you so much that Jesus is the Lord. He is king over it all. Lord, you did not uh, just send him here to sit on a throne immediately. He endured political persecution. Your people endure a politics of persecution. It may be office politics. It may be the politics of our nation, but we endure through it. But we know that Jesus did it. He did it so much better, so much more perfect. He, he dealt with it so much uh, more deeply, and it cost him his life. God and Father, we thank you. We thank you for sending your son to endure persecution on our behalf. The world hates him. The world hates us too. The world persecuted him. It will persecute us too. Father, we thank you for um, the little bit of uh, liberty and freedom in, that we enjoy right now, uh, where we are not constantly under physical threat or harm for gathering like this or for professing in the resurrection. We thank you for that, but we don't take it lightly. We know that our brothers and sisters around the world are killed, are jailed for these kinds of things. Lord, let us not take it let us not take it for granted, Father. Convince and convict our hearts deeply of that. Father, we love you. We thank you so much for your word and how it teaches us, how it teaches us to prioritize things, how it teaches us uh, how we are saved. Uh, Lord, we thank you so much for the endurance of Jesus. We thank you for the endurance of Paul also. We thank you that uh, by him you uh, wrote these letters to us that we get to read that the Spirit inspired. They are your words, but you used Paul to do it. We thank you for uh, Paul the Apostle and his willingness to uh, stay uh, faithful to you and your will to go all the way to Rome. We thank you for the not hundreds, not thousands, not tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions maybe even, of Roman Christians that came out of your ministry to Rome, changed the entire Western world, Lord, we are evidence here today because you conspired. You conspired to use the politics of the day with Jesus. You conspire even now to use politics to accomplish your will. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, Father. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.